Let's pray together. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It's all because of our precious Savior. Jesus, we love you so much. Thank you for what you have done for us. As we look to your word now, I thank you for what you teach us through it. And I pray that the Spirit of God would now actively be working among all of us to help us to better understand his word and to better apply it. And I pray, God, that by doing that, you would allow us to glorify you. And I ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I'm sure we've all had times where we've done something, it was innocent, at least we thought it was innocent, yet someone find it, found it a reason to be critical or they misinterpreted what we were doing. It's like what happened. One, it, was, it was the day after Christmas one year, and the pastor, he noticed that the baby Jesus was missing from the church's outdoor nativity scene. So he's wondering, what should he do? Should he call the police? Should, what, he wasn't really sure what to do with that because it was a really critical thing, part of the nativity scene, to have Jesus in it. So as he's thinking about that, all, he, he's looking around and he notices little Jimmy from next door pulling a red wagon. And once you know it, the, in the wagon was the missing baby Jesus. Jimmy, why did you take Jesus? You know that you can't steal from the church. Well, pastor. Okay, that wasn't really a funny part, right? Do you promise to laugh when I get to the punchline? No, no, you, you don't. I know you too well. But anyway, he says, well. Oh. When I want you to laugh, you don't. So he says, well, pastor, I've been praying to Jesus. I told him that if he let me get a red wagon for Christmas, that I'd give him a ride around the block in it. (laughs) Now, was that a polite laugh? I don't know, but I'm going to take it. I'll take it. But but it's hard to criticize that, right? But Jimmy's intentions, they were well-meaning. Sometimes things really are much more benign than people interpret them to be. And I think that's exactly what happened to Jesus and his disciples one Sabbath day. I hope you're with me. Book of Mark, chapter 2. I have three points I want us to look at this morning. First of all is a Sabbath day snack. By the way, before I, before I get into my sermon, I, I just want to say how grateful I am to Jordan for preaching last Sunday, doing an outstanding job. I'm also thankful, and I was very appreciative of all of you that came up afterwards and told me what a great job that you thought he did, and I would agree with that. But you also left me slightly perplexed. (laughs) Because, you see, many of you, right after telling me what a great job you thought Jordan did with his sermon, you told me that you thought that I do a whiny voice better than he does. (laughs) So... So here's my question. Here's my question. Is it a compliment to be told that you're a better whiner than someone else? I just wasn't sure what to do with that. 
Well, you know what? We're just going to leave that alone. We'll leave that alone. And we're going to see what happened to Jesus and his disciples. Okay, so again, I hope you're with me. Mark chapter 2. Let me read verses 23 and 24 and have you follow along. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, no wonder the Pharisees were upset. I mean, honoring the Sabbath, that was one of the Ten Commandments. That's the fourth commandment. To think that the disciples would brazenly violate it by plucking heads of grain. And if that wasn't bad enough, Matthew and Luke, in their account of this, they tell us a little bit more information, and they tell us that once they had plucked those heads of grain, what they did is they rubbed them together in their hands, and then they, they ate them. I, I, I know, the, the infraction, it is so egregious, so obvious, that I know it hardly even bears mentioning or commenting upon But just in case you aren't fully up to date on all of your Jewish laws, let me just kind of give you some insight. Let me explain this to you. So are you ready? You you might want to write this one down, okay, because this is profound. Oh, wait. The disciples did nothing to violate the fourth commandment. Here's the thing. You see, the Jewish religious leaders... They became so obsessed with keeping the Sabbath that what they did is they made a bunch of extra laws to protect people from even getting close to violating the Sabbath day. So it would be like you and I. Let's say that we, the speed limit here is 55 miles an hour, and we said you can't go over 55 miles an hour, and we all know that. That's breaking the law if you do that. But then we come up with the idea, hey, here's a thought. We don't want anyone to break the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit. So what we're going to do is we're going to say people can't go over 35 miles an hour. Yeah, that, that will work. 35 miles an hour. That way no one could possibly violate the 55. And so then we're watching. We're here with our radar guns or whatever it is, and we're watching, and we see someone go by 40 miles an hour. How dare they? Don't they know that we said they can't go more than 35 miles an hour? Oh, sure, the speed limit's 55, but that's not the point. The point is they violated the command, the rule, the regulation we came up with that would keep anyone from possibly violating the 55 miles an hour. Kind of silly, right, when you think of it like that? But that's exactly, exactly what was going on. The religious leaders came up with all of these extra rules, and they expected everyone to follow them. And if they didn't, they became extremely upset. For example, to make sure that people did not violate the Sabbath day by taking a journey, what they did is they came up with the rule that you could not take more than 1,999 steps on the Sabbath. That that approximately a half of a mile. Did they even have step counters back then? I mean, who in the world would count their steps? And it's like, (gasps) 
I'm at 1,998 and I still have 10 feet to get to my house. What am I going to do? Right? That's how silly these extra rules were that they came up with. Uh, as an extra safeguard to pre- prevent people from working on the Sabbath, what they did, the Pharisees came up with these rules that if anyone, and this one applies to our text, if anyone would pick the head of grain, any grain, on a Sabbath day, they said, well, that's reaping. Can't do that. That's horrible, clear violation of the Sabbath. Or so they said. Then they went further. That's not enough because if you rubbed it together in your hands to remove the chaff from it, well, that's threshing. Another blatant violation of the Sabbath day. And then you rubbed it, right? You've got chaff in your hands. You've got the grain, so you blow on it. Well, blowing on it, that's winnowing. So, so according to them, these disciples violated at least three different rules. They reaped, and they threshed, and they winnowed on that Sabbath day. Yeah, it's like, give me a break. They were so upset about this. But Jesus, he called them out. He called them out, though, by reminding them of something in Scripture. It's, it's, it's so interesting what he does in there, because he referred them back to something that they would have certainly known. It was, it was in 1 Samuel 21. Everyone knew about David. David was their, uh, the greatest king that they had ever had. And so they understood this, knew the story, but they were not willing to apply it to the situation. But Jesus reminded them, if you remember, David, he was running for his life from his crazy father-in-law, Saul. And David didn't even have time to stop and grab some food. And so what he did is he's on his journey and he stops by the tabernacle and he asks the priest if, he could, if there's any food there that he could have with him. Well, there wasn't anything available except for bread, the bread of the presence, it was referred to, and that was part of the tabernacle. And that bread, it was changed out every week for new bread, and then the old bread could be eaten by the priest, only by the priest. That was a rule that God had placed there. But because people are more important than ceremonial laws, the priest gave the bread to David, and there was nothing wrong in him doing that. Look at, let's look at verses 25 and 26. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. I, I like the way that John MacArthur, I think he says it so well in regards to this. He, he, he writes this. He says, if God makes allowances for his own law to be broken under certain circumstances for the welfare of his people, Jesus said, he surely permits purposeless and foolish man-made traditions to be broken for that purpose. Instead of the Sabbath being a day of rest, a day of refreshment, a day of worship, which God had designed it to be. God had made it for the people. What it had, instead, it had been, been turned into this incredible 
bondage and burden for the Jewish people. The Pharisees, they wielded the Sabbath as a legalistic hammer, just crushing people, anything that they did to violate, not the Sabbath commandment, but violate any of the extra rules and commandments that they had come up in regards to that. And the reason the Pharisees did that is really it was a futile attempt on their part to try to make themselves look a whole lot more spiritual than everyone else. It was all for them a comparison thing, and they were prideful because they kept their rules and regulations better than the other people did. Jesus, of course, he would have none of that. And I'm pretty sure that what he says next, what he said next to them was something that none of them saw coming. Let's look at verses 27 and 28. <clears throat> And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I love this. Not only was the Sabbath given as a gift, allowing a day of rest, but Jesus, the Son of Man, thats he's referring to himself there, and they knew exactly that he was referring to himself as God here. But Jesus, the Son of Man, he was Lord of it all. The ridiculous rules made by the Pharisees, they had no authority. Sure, they wanted everyone to abide by their rules because, again, it was a comparison thing and they tried to make themselves seem more spiritual, but they had no authority. But look at it here. Jesus had all authority. Just a great thing. And you can see that the Pharisees, or you can at least imagine that they did not like it at all, which leads us to the second point, which is a Sabbath day healing. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Again, he entered the synagogue... And a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Same day, same issue. Mark doesn't tell us that, but again, we see from the other gospel writers, this is the very same day. So basically, think of it this way. The Jesus and disciples, they left the grain field, and they walked into the synagogue, and the Pharisees, you can just almost imagine the tension within that building, the synagogue that day, because Jesus had foiled them in the grain field. So now what they were doing is they were strategizing and they were looking for another chance to accuse him of violating God's command. By the way, I want you to notice something here. Jesus' power to heal was never even called into question. Do you notice that? He had proven over and over again that he could heal, and so that wasn't even on the table. So rather than acknowledge his authority over disease, the Pharisees chose instead to focus on their ridiculous, legalistic, add-on laws. And I think it's so ironic here. Think of this. They were hoping that Jesus would do a really good thing, which was heal a man who had a withered hand, they were hoping he could do, do a really, really good thing so that they could accuse him of being really evil and wicked and sinful. Isn't that ironic? Again, crazy. Because he came up with all of these other rules. In fact, the Greek word there, it says, ESV says that they watch. It's in the imperfect tense, which means it's continuous action. In other words, they were watching and they kept watching and they kept watching just trying to figure out seeing if he could do, would do anything 
that they could capitalize capitalize upon. In fact, one Greek scholar, he says that he translates it this way, they kept on spying upon him closely. This wasn't like they just kind of like looked around and like, hmm, wonder if Jesus was doing anything. No, no, they had their radar on and they were watching and they kept watching and they were spying upon him. It was, I suspect it was pretty obvious to everyone but the Pharisees that it was all about their petty, petty jealousy of Jesus. In fact, that word accused, they wanted to accuse him. It's an interesting word. It's a legal term. It's not like just like, hey, Jesus, you just did something wrong. No, it means, the word itself means to bring formal charges against. That's how pathetically serious they were in trying to see that Jesus had violated something. Let's keep reading verse 3. This is Jesus. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Now, synagogues, think of a synagogue. Remember, synagogues were not the temple. The temple was in Jerusalem. Synagogues were kind of like they were local. Think of them as a church. Instead of a bunch of chairs in the middle like we have, what they often, they were open in the middle, so that way if people wanted to sit on the floor that they could, and then they would have benches all around the perimeter on the outside walls. And so Jesus here, when he commands the man to come here, it literally meant to get up in the middle, front and center, right there. Jesus didn't do it off to the side. He didn't do it out of sight of anyone. He didn't want there to be any confusion. He didn't want to have anyone mixed up about what was going on. He wanted everyone to see exactly what he was going to do. Verse 4. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. I think this is really interesting. Did you notice that here? He called the man up, right? He told him to come here into the middle. Get up right in the middle. Stand up here by me. And then Jesus doesn't address the man. I find that so interesting. Instead, what he addresses the Pharisees, the ones who are watching, who are spying on him, he asks them a question. And I tell you, Jesus knocked it out of the park. He literally left them speechless because to answer the questions correctly, which, of course, is to do good and to save a life, well, that would validate what Jesus was about to do, and they certainly did not want to do that. But yet, they couldn't answer the other way. They could not say that, well, it's lawful to do evil or to kill, because that would make them look foolish and wrong. And so, perhaps for the first time in their lives, they didn't say anything. (laughs) Because truthfully, they couldn't say anything without undermining themselves. Because remember what they were doing. They were looking, they were spying upon Jesus because they wanted to accuse him of doing wrong. Verse 5. And he looked around at them. Again, at the Pharisees. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. I think the the Bible knowledge commentary, it's very helpful here, so I gave you a quote from that one. 
The author writes this. He says, this is the only explicit reference to Jesus' anger in the New Testament. I found that very interesting. He goes on and says, it was non-malicious indignation coupled with deep sorrow, in other words, grief, at their obstinate insensitivity to God's mercy and human misery. Now, that's kind of a mouthful, but if you look at those words, I think he's spot on. Neither Christ's anger nor his grief should, it should, should surprise us. Neither one should surprise us. How could he not be upset with these religious leaders who cared so little for the people that the healing of a man, think of a man who had his hand, that, that would have kept him from doing labor for providing for his family? They were upset because Jesus miraculously healed a man and they cared nothing for the man. Nothing for this individual. All that mattered to them was their own pretentious display of self-righteousness and making sure that people followed the extra rules, the extra regulations that they burdened the people with. That's the only thing that mattered to them. Contrast that now, though. Contrast that with Jesus, the one who loved people so much that he left heaven and he came to earth just so that he could die for us, paying the penalty for our sins so that we could be saved. What a contrast. And as I thought about that, I thought there's no wonder, no wonder that Jesus was angry with those calloused, insensitive, hard-hearted people, those religious leaders who cared nothing about the people, who had no sympathy whatsoever for them. All they cared about was their rules because by enforcing their rules, it made them look more spiritual than anyone else. I'm not surprised that Jesus was angry. But I love what happened next, though, as we just read here. Jesus told him, he said, stretch out your hand. And as soon as he obeyed, he was healed. Think about that. What a powerful, what a loving Savior we have. He just told the man to stretch out his hand. And the second he did that, it was healed. The man was made whole. Well, third point I want us to look at this morning is a Sabbath day alliance. Because certainly even the hard-hearted Pharisees must have rejoiced to see this man who had been handicapped, this man who had this withered hand, to see him healed. Certainly even the most insensitive person would have been happy for this man, right? Yeah, well, let's see. Verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Immediately. Now we see that again. We've talked about this several times already in the study. That's one of Mark's favorite words. He uses it more than anyone else in all the New Testament. But they wasted no time in forming an alliance with the Herodians in order to destroy Jesus. I thought about this. How ironic is this? Because if you remember just a few verses before that, Jesus had asked some questions, right, in verse 4. 
What they were actually, they didn't answer, they didn't say anything, they couldn't say anything, but really what they were doing is they were choosing to do the evil. They were choosing to do the harm. They were choosing to kill. That's what they wanted to do to Jesus. (laughs) They didn't answer the question because they knew they couldn't do it and still look good in the eyes of other people. But really what they were doing is choosing the bad, choosing to harm and to kill and to do evil. And here what we see is this is the first time it's mentioned. This is really the beginning now of a plan that it took a few years for this to come to fruition for them. But this is the beginning of the plan that would ultimately lead to the murder of Jesus through crucifixion. I'm sure you've heard this. I don't know who it originated from, but there's an old saying that says, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what's going on here. You see, we read this, and it might not stand out to us, but understanding the culture a little bit better, the Herodians, they were a secular political party, not a religious party. They were a secular religious, or excuse me, political party that strongly supported Rome. Well, no good Jew loved Rome. They hated Rome, and especially the Pharisees who were envious of the power and authority that Rome had. And so the the Herodians and the Pharisees, they opposed each other on almost every single issue, except for one. They both wanted to destroy Jesus. Now, Just as the disciples had done nothing to violate the fourth commandment when they ate some handfuls of grain, Jesus did nothing to violate the fourth commandment either. Sure, he healed the man. But there's no Old Testament law against that. Physically, all that Jesus did, you think about all that Jesus did is he said to the man, stretch out your hand. So so what command did Jesus violate that the Pharisees were so upset, so distraught, that they went and even formed an alliance with the dreaded Herodians? What did Jesus violate? Nothing. No commandment at all of the Old Testament did Jesus violate here. The only thing that he violated was the extra rules that the Pharisees had devised. And for that, they hated him so much that they formed an alliance with those dreaded Herodians in order to ultimately kill Jesus. (laughs) Isn't it amazing the depths that hatred can take people to? Well, what's the lesson for us? What's the application? There's a lot of things we could say, but I wanted to keep... Keep it pretty simple, because I think one overarching application. Since Jesus loves people, so must we. Please understand me on this. I'm not talking about acceptance of sin. I'm not saying it's okay when we choose sin. I'm not saying that. Jesus certainly is not saying that. He died for sin. That's how much Jesus hated sin. That's how seriously he took it. So I'm not saying anything about the acceptance of sin. But I am talking about refusing to let your particular preferences become more important than loving people. Because the second that you judge people based on your preferences, and there's all kinds of things. We could list a lot of them. 
But the second that we start to judge people based on our preferences, when we do that, we are no different than the self-righteous, hard-hearted, legalistic, uncaring, unsympathetic Pharisees, the ones who made Jesus angry and the ones who grieved his heart. And I know that you don't want that any more than I do. So we must, let me say again, we must guard against that. Just because someone dresses differently than you do or listens to a different style of music or drives a foreign car and you drive an American-made or, or because they're in one political party and you're in a different one or anything. We can list a whole bunch of things. Just because someone is different than you are on your, based on your preferences, you cannot judge them and despise them and be upset with them and claim that you are honoring your Savior. You cannot Jesus loves people. Therefore, we must, must love people. We have to guard ourselves. The moment you start to criticize someone, just pause. I just beg of you to do that. Just pause and think, why am I criticizing them? Is this a violation of Scripture? Or are they just doing something that I don't like? I don't know of anyone who thinks well of the Pharisees as we read the stories, right? To love Jesus, we have to love people. People have to be more important to us than our own set of preferences. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, please protect us from being like the Pharisees. Oh, I pray that you will help us to always value people, value people more than we value our own preferences or our made-up rules. Help us to love our Savior by loving the people that he created, the people that he died for. And I pray, oh, please don't let us ever have hard hearts. Don't let us ever become critical of people thinking less of them just because they disagree with us or are different than we are on issues that are not even biblical commands. Guard us, please, Jesus, guard us and help us love you and love your people. I ask this in your name. Amen.